Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Views on View. I'm your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is Steve Edwards. Hello from Portland. Had That's to think special. for a minute where I was at. Are you still in Portland? Uh, literally, no, but I'm in the area, so close enough. Welcome to Boston, Oregon for History Buffs. <laughs> so true. And special guest today is Eric Gardner. Welcome, Eric. Hi, thanks for having me. Eric, would you mind introducing yourself for our audience? Yeah, sure. So I'm Eric Gardner. I'm a software engineer at the Wikimedia Foundation, and I'm a member of the newly formed design systems team over there. So I have been, over the last couple of years, I've been involved in efforts to migrate some of the, the front end uh, tools that we use to some more modern libraries. And specifically, I've been working on introducing Vue.js to some of the work we're doing. And now I'm involved in efforts to you know, build out some new systems like a new component library using that as well. So yeah, I have a design background from a long time ago, and now I'm trying to help work with the design team at Wikipedia to modernize the front end a little bit. Awesome. Thank you. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. And for full context, Eric and I have worked briefly together. I, I do some consulting work at Wikimedia Foundation through This Dot Labs. I've been working on different projects, though. So we see each other in passing and we've talked occasionally. So yeah, Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about all this. Quick question real quick. A quick question really quick from the Department of Redundancy Department. So you're talking about design. So when I think of design, I think of graphical design and it gives me the heebie-jeebies because I really suck at it. You know, designing a layout and stuff. Are you talking that type of design? Or are you talking design as in architectural design of the underlying infrastructure for converting to view? I guess, so that's a great question. And I am probably doing some of both now, maybe more of the latter. I did, in a previous life, I was a designer, like a graphic designer. Like graphic design is my passion kind of designer. And I, I enjoyed solving visual problems. And the kind of design that I liked the most was less about, here's my unique aesthetic visual brand on everything, and more about how to make things clean and simple and understandable and, and legible. And I think that's the kind, of the, the kind of design that we really need at uh, Wikipedia and that Wikipedia does well. Maybe some some might say it's kind of like a brutalist design, but we're just striving for maximum simplicity, clarity, things that will work across all these different languages. So, but yeah, there is another side to design, which is like designing how the system works. And as I've gotten, I guess, more into like deeper into software engineering uh, in my career, that's what's been maybe the most interesting to me, um, solving these kind of technical problems and designing how the pieces fit together. I really enjoy that work. So more of a, what you would call site architecture? Yeah, there's definitely an architectural component, I think, in the work that we're doing now, where we're trying to think about how to how to introduce maybe some new technology into this existing system, how to make things fit together in an intuitive way, how to make it easy to use for yeah, kind of developers who are building stuff, how to make things simple for the end user without disrupting these other systems that need to continue working the way that they've been working for the past 5, 10, 
15 years. So I'm curious, Eric, if your passion is primarily in the graphic design side, what brought you to to pivot from that into the programming space and more working on the on the code itself? Yeah, so um, I... Uh, like I was saying before, I was always into typography, publication design, things that were design that was about applying a set of rules, uh, maintaining consistency, solving visual problems, um, presenting information in a clear way. Um, I was always into that more than like the art side of, of design, which is also important, but I, that wasn't really me. So I worked for many years at, at art museums, actually. So you know, there there were other people who were doing like, here's the visual art, the impactful art, and then you need information about it, or you need people to, to be able to find their way around the museum. So I did things like that, either in physical spaces or in publications. And over time, I just found I really liked um, solving those kind of problems. And I enjoyed that more than the subjective, like, how cool can you make something look side of design? And I, I think I was probably better at, at the problem solving side too. And so I got into front end software just to try to do design on the web, basically. So HTML, CSS, only a little bit of JavaScript at first. But for me, I I got a job many years ago. I, I worked at the Getty Museum in Los Angeles. Maybe some of your listeners are familiar with, with that. It's this big museum. It looks kind of, I think they used it as like the Starfleet Academy uh, setting um, in LA because it looks very futuristic and whatever. But uh, so I was working on building digital publications. So uh, we were trying to create a digital equivalent of those beautiful like museum coffee table books that you might see, you know, that have these beautiful reproductions of artwork. And uh, doing that was really challenging. And the one of the issues in the past was people would build something like some kind of a database-driven application, and they would try to display like here's you know this sculpture, and you can look at it from different sides or something. And there's all this data that the researchers might benefit from, but these things would become obsolete so quickly. So a book, a book has a really long lifespan. You know, you can pick up a book from 50 years ago or go to the library and find something that was published a long time ago, and you can still use it. You can still cite it. Whereas the lifespan of these attempts to put this stuff online, it was really short and uh, it wasn't working very well. So the solution we came up with in my department was we're going to abandon all the backend and we're going to do everything only with static websites. So nowadays, this is known as like the Jamstack, but this is before that. So we were doing Jamstack stuff before it was cool. And I was just excited by all the things you could do just relying on the browser. So like I didn't really know anything about databases. Um, I still don't really know much about databases, to be honest. And I, I didn't know backend languages very much. Uh, I had dabbled in Ruby a little bit, but I knew how to operate a static site generator. And then it was just a matter of presentation. And we were dealing with information that, that didn't really need to change. It was a book, so it was already published. It was in its final form. Uh, it was just about presenting it and then making it durable. So we created a series of publications. And uh, you can look at if you go to the you know, getty.edu, it's the Getty website, you can find the digital publications on their site. And there's still several of them up there. You can like zoom in on these interactive images of like ancient Greek sculptures from 2000 years ago or find like location of mosaics on a map of the Roman Empire. Uh, so we built stuff that it's all front end, basically. And in that process, uh, that's where I came across Vue for the first time. So this is probably back when it was version, maybe it's version zero at this point. So it was very new. But immediately I was like, okay, this makes total sense to me. React and Ember and Angular. Some of these things had also been starting to get to get some buzz. You know, this was like 2015, 2016, I guess. But a lot of them were really from like a software engineer's perspective. I think I remember trying to wrap my head around React and some of the concepts in it. And it just didn't totally click with me with my design background. And then I came across Vue. And first of all, it had great documentation, which it, it still does. I think that's long been a strength of the framework. But I also got the sense that it was really a project that 
came, I think Evan, you had a design background himself. It certainly seemed that way. Like the idea of, of okay, I want to build these interactive elements, these UI components, and I want to just, you know, here's the template front and center. It's in HTML. It's something I already understand. Here's a block of code for the style sheet. Again, it's something I understand. I don't really need to think about, oh, what's the, what kind of third-party JavaScript library do I need to represent styles as objects in JavaScript to, you know, manipulate them in all these ways. Obviously, there's, there's advantages of doing that, but from someone with a design background, that was just a lot of extra stuff to, to absorb that I wasn't really in a place to, to do that at that time. So it was pretty easy to just immediately drop in. You didn't even need a build system. And I can get back to this point later because this has been relevant more recently as well. But it's pretty easy to see, okay, I can drop these components directly onto my page. If I don't even have an elaborate build system, I can compile the templates on the client. I can write things in HTML and CSS that I'm familiar with, and I can still get all this awesome interactivity, which as like one developer working in a project without a lot of technical support, it's kind of the way that I needed to work. So yeah, I was uh, very impressed when I first found it. The documentation was great. It was easy to pick up. And over time, I've just kind of stuck with it. And I've generally, every time I've had the ability to pick a framework, that's what I've reached for. And I've been really impressed by how Vue has kind of balanced stability and innovation, I would say, in the years since. So with very few exceptions, I can write view components pretty much the same way that I could when I first picked up the framework. I think there were one or two things that were deprecated, but not much. But you do also have some of the ability to do things like with the new composition API or support for TypeScript. So when you do need those other optimizations, they're there, you can reach for them. But there's kind of a nice gentle on-ramp, I guess, to getting started in the framework. And I think that's been really great. And I'm, I'm very pleased with the direction that the, the core team has gone in, in terms of preserving that, the Options API, basically preserving that sort of beginner-friendly way of working. And I, I hope that that remains the case for a long time. That's really cool that you have this longer history with you. A lot of people that we've talked to came in after AngularJS broke off to be Angular. And, and they're coming at it from that perspective. It's really cool to have you coming in from the design perspective and saying, this is something that's familiar to me. That resonates a lot more with me because I came in from, from HTML, CSS, and using PHP for rendering templates. It was something that just clicked when I was working with Vue that, oh, this it's the same idea. I'm just using it in a component format instead of breaking into separate files like I used to do. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a very intuitive way to work. And as a designer, it's easy to think in terms of UI components rather than you know free-floating functions or, or logic or something like that. I think that's, that's a very easy way to communicate across disciplines. So you, at some point, you switched from Getty, obviously, and now you're at the Wikimedia Foundation. What what initially triggered this this drive at Wikimedia to to adopt Vue? What was that like? Yeah, so so I I can talk about this. Uh, so when I yeah at the time that I joined the foundation, I had probably several years under my belt of working as a you know a front end software engineer. So I had kind of moved on from design at this point, and I was pretty comfortable with the world of modern JavaScript. So single page application using build tools, writing in modern JS, ES6. I was familiar with the world of of modern JavaScript. Uh, and then I joined the foundation and, you know, I love Wikipedia. I, I think the mission is uh, really outstanding. I think that it's one of the greatest creations of the internet, right? Uh, the idea of let's make, let's make the sum of all human knowledge freely available to anyone on the planet. That's really great. And that really resonated with my own background working in museums and well, around publications and stuff. So, so I was excited to get there, but once I joined the foundation, it was a very, the onboarding process was a humbling experience. Let's, let's say. So the foundation, you know, Wikipedia has been around since about 2003. And a lot of the front end code was first set up maybe in 2009 or so. And they had to basically solve a lot of the problems that the larger front end ecosystem tried to tackle 
long before any of what we consider the like dominant solutions, long before those things existed. Uh, so there was a custom module system that was developed, you know, before like ES modules was a thing. Um, I, I think it, it so maybe even before Comma.js, it implements the Comma.js syntax more or less. You know, we had different ways to structure our code. There was a different UI framework. Everything was jQuery based. And it's a testament to, in some ways, like the longevity and the robustness of these tools that they were still working and working fairly well 10 years later. But the flip side was that it was a complete paradigm shift. So there's a completely different way of thinking about uh, a web application, the way that data moves around in the UI, where you know, you've got this sort of imperative based manipulate the page every time there's a change versus uh, what I'd say the more modern paradigm is of like, you have a reactive UI where the 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 user interface is automatically in sync with the data. You know, you can think of it like a function that the output, the input is the data from the user and the output is the current state of the UI. Um, so uh, that's a lot more easy to reason about, I think. So, so yeah, coming to the foundation, I felt like I had to really relearn everything. We had to write everything in ES5 again. There's no build tool. Um, so a lot of the modern JavaScript stuff that I had been used to using, I had to really reach back to the very beginning of my education as a web developer and remember how to do things the old-fashioned way. You know, you're writing IIFE functions by hand and passing around your uh, things in scope to kind of like manage your dependencies that way, or you're, um, you end up doing things in a more convoluted way, basically. It, so this it was, was jarring to me. Oh, go ahead. And j- just my own experience, when I want to reiterate that. It was, it was very jarring for me as well. It's amazing how much you get used to things like the array methods that we have today, dot find, dot includes, those those don't exist. They're not available. You have to use ES5 and index of and start doing your own iteration. Yeah. Very, Did I mention that very... we didn't have any NPM packages? <laughs> oh, I didn't even realize that. Yeah. So if you wanted to use a dependency, you had to go through security. But yeah, all these things that we rely on as conveniences, they weren't there. So it was really relearning a lot of what I thought I knew. And I mean, that was something I was willing to do. I'd been around long enough where I could kind of remember back to the, the, the earlier days and I could pick up that way of working again. It just took some time. But the thing that kind of set the light bulb off for me was there was another developer who uh, she was like very bright, had just come out of a coding boot camp, uh, someone who had kind of transitioned from another career and was like a great collaborator. I really enjoyed working with her, but she was kind of at the beginning of her career as a web developer. And at a certain point, she she was saying, I just don't think I can stick around here because everything I'm learning here is completely the opposite way that I'm going to do things everywhere else that I work. And I, I feel like this is just kind of a sort of a dead end for me. Learning this way of doing things is not really going to provide a basis for any of the other places I might work like later on in my career, basically. So we're sort of in a cul-de-sac. And that seems like, you know, yeah, this is this is a problem. We're trying to hire a lot of new people. I think the foundation cares a lot about trying to, you know, be more inclusive, uh, bring in a wide variety of uh, both employees, but also contributors to work on its projects. Uh, and it's going to be harder to do that if you have, if everybody needs to be up to speed in a way of doing things that just isn't really widely done anymore. And it's become kind of like this arcane, less intuitive way to work. And so there are a lot of benefits to aligning the way that we write code with what I would say are modern best practices in the front end space. So, so yeah, I, that was kind of a wake up call. And, uh, after that, I was able to participate in some internal discussions around, Hey, how can we modernize the front end tools that we have? How can we make things maybe a little bit more approachable to new people, et cetera. And that led to this thing called the the FOG, F-A-W-G, the front end architecture working group, which I participated in, uh, in 2019. And the outcome of that was a um, an RFC document, request for comment document, which is like a technical proposal about adopting a modern JavaScript framework. And so the conclusion of that was 
uh, we are going to start introducing a modern JavaScript framework for, for certain features. We're not just going to turn Wikipedia into an SPA, but some of the features that we were building were these more interactive, dynamic things that, that would benefit from this. And so rather than using our kind of in-house jQuery-based framework with its imperative programming paradigm and, and all of that, rather than continuing to do that, we decided, okay, these features would better be served by adopting a modern framework that's more widely used. And for various reasons, Vue was was the winner there. It seemed like the best fit for our own project. Nice. Yeah, I've having worked with MediaWiki, the the engine behind Wikipedia, I can see all of the the changes that you're talking about, as well as some of the the legacy there. I didn't realize before I'd come in there was no npm. So I I can see the need to to work on this. The current library the for front end components, I believe, is called OOUI. Is that correct? Yeah, OOUI. Is that pronounced UI? <laughs> I think there are different interpretations. Okay. Uh, someone's referred to it as Aoi. Like there you go. Myself, yeah. <laughs> and um, so the intent, the intent was to, like you're saying, was to move not the entire entirety of the the front end into view into JavaScript, but to make certain pieces of the UI more interactive and more maintainable using the modern tool set. Yeah, that's and, right. Eventually, I think we will try to replace OUI, which was being used in a similar way. You know, not every page was built with it, but certain uh, more dynamic features were. So I think that's what we'd like to replace with you. That makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting, especially considering, you know, the Wikimedia Foundation does have a legacy application that they're they're working on here. It's interesting that you took this approach of forming a working group and going with uh, an RFC and and both getting internal read on how people feel about it, as well as the community, since uh, Wikipedia is very much a community-driven organization. How did that process go of collecting feedback and and actually determining that view is the way you wanted to go? Yeah, so I would definitely refer any interested listeners to the RFC document itself, which is uh, it's on our our task tracking tool called Fabricator. It's all public. I think there's a link. There'll be a link here. So yeah, we basically talked through you know the different criteria that we needed. We did have some community input, and then this was opened to community discussion. Obviously, it's. It's a controversial decision, so there were folks advocating for different things, but the consensus was that, or I guess the majority opinion anyway, was that Vue was the, the right way to go here. And some of the reasons for that was, um, you know, as opposed to something like React, I guess. Uh, React was the other thing we were looking at very closely. Obviously, both of them work in similar ways, provide similar features. One of the reasons we were interested in Vue specifically was uh, there's a... I'd say there's a smaller number of libraries that we need to pay attention to, basically, and they're managed by the core team. So maybe the, the bar is higher or they're a little bit more reliable or guaranteed to continue to be updated for a longer amount of time. One thing with React is you know, something, a, a basic piece of functionality like uh, state management or how to deal with CSS in JavaScript. There might be a half a dozen different widely used open source libraries, right? So from one perspective, that's great. You have a lot of choice. You have a lot of uh, different options. And I think for maybe an early stage startup or for some place that has a lot of technical resources and can move really quickly in these areas, that's great. You have all the choices at your disposal. Uh, but the flip side is you can get to kind of decision fatigue where every time you need to reach for something, oh, there's like 10 different libraries I have to evaluate. And I hope that a year from now, I've made the right decision. I think that at uh, Wikipedia, for better and for worse, things move more slowly. And so something with a little bit more stability was more uh, appealing, basically. So in Vue, it seems like, well, okay, for state management, I don't have half a dozen high-quality solutions, but we have Vuex, which does what we need anyway. Um, and it's maintained by the, essentially the core team or in close 
uh, relationship with the core team. So we know that that's not just going to like go away in favor of a different solution that's chosen by the community two years from now. Um, so that's something that we wanted to avoid. Uh, and I think that was kind of particular to our, our use case. Also, I mentioned before the, the familiarity of HTML and CSS or, you know, the ability to use things like SCSS or less. Like that was nice rather than having to uh, completely learn a new way to, to do that kind of front end stuff. So again, I think if you have a maybe a larger uh, department of engineers, JSX, there's definitely advantages to working that way. But I think there's something nice about the HTML as a technology a lot of people understand, including uh, non-computer scientists, non-software engineers, you know, designers and people who maybe are volunteer contributors that don't have the same level of uh, uh, specialized knowledge. This, this is something that a lot of people would find easy to understand. Uh, so that was nice as well. The final thing about Vue that I think was really nice, in my opinion, was it served the progressive enhancement use case a little bit better, or at least it, it seemed to prioritize that more. So obviously, you can you can drop React onto a page with a script tag and use create element and things like that. But it's really not the way to build any application of reasonable complexity. Almost immediately, you need JSX, which means you need Webpack, you need a build system and all of that. We just for various reasons, it wasn't feasible to introduce all of that stuff at once. We're still looking at ways to introduce something like a front-end build step, for example. And Vue was a little bit more batteries included because the core library comes with a template compiler. And the template compiler is not... Using all of Babel is not really feasible at runtime. It's this huge library. It has to do a lot of different things. Vue had its own compiler just for its own use case, uh, which... Again, you know, a lot of people in a production optimization, they, they don't ship the compiler, uh, but there are reasons where you might want to. And it's actually not, it's not such a huge impact, really. I think that it, it's worked just fine for us so far. And uh, actually, the compiler has gotten a lot of optimization in Vue 3. So it's nice to see that this is still a part of the technology that's getting a lot of attention and you know, it's being upgraded. But, you know, what that means is that we were able to shoehorn Vue single file components into our legacy PHP-based module system, module delivery system, where we could just provide these templates as strings, feed them into the compiler, and then you know we have all the benefits of writing our code in view single file components, provided, of course, they're still in ES5, which no one else does anywhere in the universe. But we were able to fit that into our, our kind of our legacy system, still get a lot of the benefits without having to reinvent everything all at once, uh, because Vue could handle that uh, template compilation process itself. So those are some examples of areas where Vue kind of won out in our use case. And I think the progressive enhancement thing is still going to be a big part of Vue going forward. I was uh, very pleased to see Evan Yu's latest project. Uh, I think he was calling it Petite Vue, which was inspired by Alpine.js. So I think something like that is actually very relevant to maybe the general Wikipedia experience, where, again, I don't think we're going to turn Wikipedia into a single-page application but if we were going to embed a certain part of view, like a subset of view, into the basic reading experience, it might be something like that, this petite view, super stripped down, minimal, and then you ship the entire thing when you needed a richer interactive UI. So it's nice to see that that's still a, a use case that's being considered too. Yeah, I, I love that view has that support for progressive enhancement, not just baked into the framework, because like, like you were saying, React can do that, but it's, it's baked into the ethos of what view really is. I remember when I was first investigating Vue at the at the start of my career, it's like, it, this is progressive enhancement. You can use it a little bit. You can use it a lot. You can build SPAs. You don't have to. And recently, we've been in, interviewing many people who are not using Vue in the full SPA range. That there, there really is that interest in the community of just being able to target reactivity into specific pieces. 
And like you said, we can see that with the petite view. There's also in view 3.2, the support for building web components with view built into the framework that just provides another example of that. You don't need to use the entire framework. You don't need to use the entire DOM just as a view application. You can just target these very specific points and view encourages it actively, uh, which I really appreciate. So at this point, we've done the RFC. We've, we've talked to the community. Decisions have been made. This is the direction we want to go. What were the first steps to actually start integrating view into, into MediaWiki? What, what, I guess, what was the first thing to try so that you could see this is actually going to work once the decision was made to try using view? Yeah. So after, after we decided that was the framework we wanted to adopt, we started a period of experimentation. A couple different teams were experimenting with view in a few different ways for most of last year. So the, uh, one team that's responsible for kind of the main web experience on like article pages wow. and things like that, they upgraded the search tool. So if you search, if you go to Wikipedia and you type in a search box, a little view component will, it's not loaded on the page by default, but that is what powers the search once you start interacting with it. So they built a search tool using that. And uh, you, you know, that was one of the main first use cases of like, oh yeah, this seems like it's working pretty well. We built a lot of components that can be reused in this. So we think this can be a good foundation for future efforts. I was working on another team called the Structured Data Team, which was uh, tasked with you know, basically Wikipedia articles and a lot of the other content that we have. It's designed for human eyes. It's not really machine readable. So an article is you know, kind of a soup of words or HTML tags or templates. And th that's great if you're a person reading it. But if you're trying to break articles down into smaller pieces or surface information based on a search query or something, having some structure to that data helps a lot. So we were looking at ways to introduce you know, that kind of stuff into articles. Uh, we built a tool that basically improved on the search experience for commons, uh, Wikimedia Commons, um, and we used Vue for that. So that's, if you go to uh, commons and basically type in a search in the search box, uh, you'll get a, it's kind of like Google Images. So we basically built a multimedia search tool using Vue, which is almost a single page application. It's still embedded in a larger PHP setup, but um, all the results are dynamic once it, once the JS initializes. That was another like big thing that we made with Vue. The language team, uh, was creating some translation tools with Vue to help people basically translate an article from one language into another. And they built, again, kind of a little SPA to do that. And then the uh, the team that does Wikidata, which is the Wikimedia Deutschland team, one of our affiliates, they have also been using Vue in some of their front-end code. So a lot of teams were introducing it in different places. I think that we are all kind of learning different lessons. And so the next step in the process was to try to bring everybody together and consolidate things a little bit and basically make some decisions going forward. So that was this uh, that led to this developer summit that we had over the summer, where folks from all the different teams doing front-end stuff were able to come together, talk through a series of uh, technical questions, share some of their experiences. And so that the outcome of that is basically that uh, we will, sometime in the near future, we will begin migrating to Vue 3. We're going to begin a, a shared component library that teams across the foundation can use. It'll be written in Vue 3, and we will, we're basically dropping JavaScript support for Internet Explorer 11 from a lot of our features as, as part of that. So we decided we could better support users of these legacy browsers just by working on the Node.js experience rather than trying to make our JavaScript run in these legacy browsers. I think that supporting users without any JavaScript at all is going to reach a wider pool of people 
whether you know it's through SEO things, other bots that need uh, JavaScript-free pages to work on. You know, there's users that have no JavaScript enabled for privacy concerns, bandwidth concerns. So that benefits a lot more people than just targeting one ancient browser that's never going to update. And by finally dropping support in JavaScript for IE 11, it really freed us up to to embrace some more modern things like ES6, Vue 3, things like that, that I'm very excited about to finally see here. So if I can deviate for a little bit, you were talking about search and Mm -hmm. your structured data and stuff. As someone who has spent a lot of time dealing with search and not just search and rescue, but computer search, what uh, what do you use for your searching mechanism, like an Apache Solar, an Elasticsearch, something based on Lucene, just straight text search? We're using Elasticsearch okay. in the background. So MediaWiki is, we're not the only people running MediaWiki. It's kind of a, it, it's it's a framework like Drupal or something that you could use to run all kinds of different types of websites. But the way that we have it set up on Commons and in production Wikipedia, we do have an Elasticsearch instance that's communicating. So we're getting data back from that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I use that on a regular basis here. Elasticsearch is one of its strengths that that we use at GovTribe is aggregation, being able to create aggregations of a whole bunch of data real easily for you. So you don't have to do it on the front end and just using that. But yeah, Elasticsearch is, is really cool. Yeah, I have only very lightly touched Elasticsearch in, in my work because I think we're doing something similar to what you described where it's, it's basically powering, it's underneath the API, but it's not really exposed directly um, to the API that we're using. So um, we're building the, a lot of the things that we built this UI to do for commons, the media search, you could do in the old search if you knew all the right queries, if you knew all the right API parameters and things like that. But your average user doesn't know that stuff. And it was still pretty difficult, even if you did. And so we're basically tying together a lot of that stuff and then kind of tucking it away where someone only needs to worry about that if they want to make a really specific, complicated query. Otherwise, by default, they'll get this much more useful experience that shows like, okay, we you're on Commons, so we figure you want a media file, we'll show you, we'll break them up by media type, you know, we'll do things like that. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free, it's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say, Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. 
So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. So talking about the specific implementations of you in the front end, part of my work, like I said, is, has been working with the abstract Wikipedia team. And we're using it in a very similar way to structured data, where obviously MediaWiki itself has its frame still, uh, but we're injecting view into the main content of the site and treating it like an SPA. And that, that provides a lot of flexibility because, I mean, let me back up. You don't want to replace the entirety of MediaWiki in one go. There's a whole bunch of legacy there. There's a whole bunch of code that is still fully functional. All, we're, all your goal is, is to augment that with the advanced, not advanced, even modern JavaScript, adding on view on top, adding some things that were more difficult to maintain and put them into a more modern and streamlined way. I'm very excited about the the adoption of U3 and moving more to align with ES6 and some of the modern tooling. Uh, one thing you left out that might be interesting to our listeners is that you're also using Vite for the development experience uh, with building that component library. Would you mind talking a little bit about your experience with that? Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Vite. So I think this actually gets into something another one of the bigger things that we're working on next, which is you know can we can we modernize the front end infrastructure a little bit? In general, and maybe get some of the benefits of, of some of these tools, uh, which right now we're we're not fully utilizing. So I think that in a way, it's good that we've waited for so long to start looking at this stuff seriously. I think there's a benefit of showing up a little bit late to the party here because uh, the the JavaScript world, the front end world, went through kind of like a Cambrian explosion, right? Of between maybe 2015 and 2020, a lot of different new tools. This is the best thing. No, now this is the best thing. Now this one's the best thing. Um, oh, did that know, stop? <laughs> well, I think it's started to slow down a little bit. And I mean, it can be exhausting to keep up with. So it's great to have all that innovation, but it can be very difficult to keep up with. It becomes kind of a full-time job. And so just with something as basic as like, how do you build your code? Well, it, you know, it's Grunt. No, it's Gulp. No, it's Browserify. No, it's Webpack. No, it's the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Vite is I the next think, thing, by the way. Just, yeah, just saying. Um, and I think that Vite, which is also... Vite is basically built on top of Rollup. So Rollup was another tool we were looking at. But one thing that Vite and Rollup have in common, and it's different from something like Webpack, is you know now that it's 2021... Okay, so JavaScript, one of the first things that I read when I was learning how to program is uh, it was called JavaScript, The Good Parts. It's a great book. It's still a great book. But there is an appendix of all the bad parts. And so, you know, JavaScript was originally designed to make text blink and move around on like your Neopets homepage or whatever. Um, and... Uh, now we're building complex inter applications with it, but for a long time, the language didn't have a standard module system, for example, which any like kind of industrial programming language would have, Ruby, PHP, whatever. There's a way to modulize your code. So that wasn't a part of JavaScript itself. So there were a lot of different approaches to how to do it. You know, Node.js had one way of doing things. Different approaches in the browser could be taken to modularize your code. And Webpack, which became kind of a de facto tool to bundle your code together, was really designed around some of, I guess, the legacy standards. You know, it's, Webpack is a Node.js application, first and foremost, and it's uh, designed around Node.js module standards. And if you want to get something like tree shaking, which is uh, you know automatic elimination of dead code, for example, and code that's not reachable, which is one of the benefits of the official module system in JavaScript now, the ES module system, it makes it easier to do things like that. But that can be harder to do in Webpack. Uh, Webpack is very uh, complicated, difficult to configure. You know, a lot of developers uh, have spent a lot of time cursing and swearing at it when something doesn't quite go right. And I think that we can basically bypass that entire generation of tooling because of the time that we're finally adopting this. So 
what's nice about Veet and Rollup and, and Snowpack and some of these other, I guess I'd call them more module, uh, modern module systems is they leverage ES modules. So they, they leverage some of this new technology and they don't try to support every possible legacy format. So I think that Veet is a really nice tool. It's extremely easy to configure, even somewhat like if, if you're building a standard view single page application, it basically needs no configuration. But even for our use case, which is a little bit more of an edge case where like, okay, we really need to build things in a certain way. Like I need this module that has this file name and it needs to only contain this and not that. Uh, there's really good support for that as well. It borrows a lot of the roll-up configuration API. It's still very easy. I, I was able to do everything I needed to do in like maybe 20 or 30 lines of code. And it's extremely fast, uh, really fast. And there aren't a lot of other dependencies that you need to bring into a project. So it's a simple tool. It's part of, I mean, it's not part of Vue exactly, but it's maintained by the creator. So I think these things will advance together for a long time. And the idea that we can, by focusing on supporting our legacy browser users with a better Node.js experience, by doing that, we can free all of the JavaScript developers to, to be able to embrace more modern tools, I guess, which means that we can bypass some of the complexity of the previous generation of tools and uh, use things that are simpler. And I think this is also true in things like CSS. Uh, we might not need a CSS preprocessor anymore. We might be able to do everything that we need with a tool like PostCSS and really just target future versions of the CSS uh, specification. I think there's probably some other examples too that I just don't have on top of my head where the fact that we're waiting, that we've waited for so long, means that we can uh, bypass a lot of the last generation of technology that was maybe more complicated and uh, use something a little bit simpler going forward. Yeah, it's, um, I, I would imagine that the migration off of something like Webpack or off of UCLI into Vite would have been a lot more complicated than just going from zero to Vite. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot so. of sense to me. And I do think... One thing that I really learned in my time working in the legacy environment in media making was uh, really that less is more. I think that I definitely had a tendency to take a lot of these tools for granted before I came here. And you take a lot of the complexity for granted. Like what really is in your node modules folder? You know, you should really know that. <laughs> you should have a real clear sense of, of what software you're delivering to your users, where it's coming from, if there are potential security vulnerabilities there. And I think that for a long time, there was too much of a laissez-faire attitude in the front-end world about that. So I think that now, you know, we can try to have the best of both worlds. We can try to have the, by using a very carefully selected subset of modern JavaScript tools, I think we can get most of the benefits um, without the complexity. So that's, that's my goal. That's, that's what I want to see now. I don't want Wikipedia to go down a complexity rabbit hole where it's, it's not reliable or it's not secure, it's not performant. Uh, that's not an option. Um, but I think that we can get I think we can deliver a much better experience to our users and, and to our developers by using a really small subset of these modern tools um, and, and just limiting ourselves to that. Well, I personally don't think you should be able to use Vue or Rollup, Vite or Rollup unless you've gone through the pain of Webpack just so you can appreciate how much more pain-free it is. You know, it's, it's sort of an earned earned thing, but that's, that's just my opinion. I think I agree with that statement, yeah. Because I have never cursed at Webpack and neither has my boss. <clears throat> anyway. Is that the dad joke? Oh, no. <laughs> Everybody loves Webpack. No, I, I agree. On the note of V being very closely tied with the Vue ecosystem, especially since it was created by the creator of Vue, uh, Evan Yu has noted that Vite is going to be the preferred tooling for Vue going forward. 
We actually talked about this a couple of weeks ago on episode 163, a statement that Evan made about that. So yeah, I'm I'm very excited for the future where you don't have to deal with the pain of Webpack. You don't have to deal with all of this extra extra complexity. The tools are much simpler. They're easier to work with. They're easier to get started with. And most importantly, it just works. You know, I want to throw in one thing here. We bash Webpack a lot. And I sort of put Webpack in the same category as a jQuery, for instance, and that, oh man, we want to get rid of jQuery. It's so heavy, we don't use this, you know, bash Webpack. When those tools first came in, they were the thing to use because they were addressing cases, use cases and scenarios that nobody else had been able to address yet. And so, heck, look at Vue itself. What it, where did that come from? That came from what Evan learned out of AngularJS. So a lot of these tools that people like to bash, in all seriousness, really were the bomb when they came out because they did something that nobody else had been able to do. And now that people have seen, okay, great, they did this well, but they didn't do this quite as well. Then you learn from that, move on, and you get your next generation of tools, you know, Vite and Parcel and Rollup and 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 Petite View and Alpine JS and all these things. So anyway, just thought I'd make that point considering that, you know, so we don't come across as just bashing Webpack all the time. I, I totally agree with that. And I think that's true in in the media wiki too. You know, the stuff that has been used until now, uh, the sort of OOUI based uh, library, things like that. Those things solved a huge problem at the time with very limited resources. You know, we developed this stuff in-house when the foundation had a couple dozen developers and needed to support 300 different languages, uh, uh, different directionality of text, uh, all, all this kind of stuff, problems that a lot of much larger websites maybe didn't even have to the same extent. So these things were very successful, but the world has changed and we want to change with it. So um, we want to have the benefit of all the other things that people have learned in, in the wider world. I agree. I think that's a good point, Steve, especially since looking at older programming languages too, people like to bash COBOL or C. But without COBOL or C, we wouldn't even be here today to have this conversation. I think it, it's the unfortunate nature of programmers to to bash the thing that came before because they want to feel really good about the thing that they're doing today and enjoy the thing they have today over what happened in the past. That's my guess, at least. Yeah, sure. sort of to quote, oh. I, I believe it's an Isaac Newton quote where he says, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. And what he was it, doing, he was standing on the shoulders of giants. Exactly. Yeah, we're, we're just standing on each other's shoulders over and over and over in programming, especially when you look at the node modules folder. So Eric, now that, now that Vue is being adopted and there's projects rolling out like the structured data work, the search on commons, abstract Wikipedia, new components are being developed. Have you or anyone at uh, Wikimedia run into any downsides to using Vue? Is there any, anything that's given pause or gee, I wish this could be improved for our specific use case. What? Uh, yeah. You heretic. Asking that question? Hey, I'm, I'm talking to somebody from Wikipedia. They, uh, they, they okay. need to be neutral. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. So I think the biggest pain point that we have right now that we are looking at ways to solve, but we, we don't officially have a complete solution yet, would be server rendering. So, you know, we are... We're in a situation where we still have to basically write all of our UI code twice. So we have to write it once in you know, JavaScript or Vue or, or however we're doing it. And then we have to do it again in PHP. Um, and the PHP code that we use to generate UI is kind of similar to the previous generation of um, front-end code that we were using, where it's often very imperative. Uh, there's a series of uh, PHP classes within MediaWiki that you might use to imperatively generate markup. Some places use uh, templating languages 
So in some places that's used, in some places it's not. It's all just done programmatically in PHP. Obviously, it'd be great to not have to do this. So one of the things that we liked about Vue is it had good support for server-side rendering. And I think that in Vue 3, you know, that it continues to be refined and improved. Uh, you know, Vite has good support for that as well. But we are just not, we're not using these tools yet on the back end. We don't rely, we don't really rely on a Node.js runtime at all in MediaWiki. In the past, there's been tools that have relied on it, and there probably will be again. But it's not a core part of MediaWiki, which is a PHP app. So we are trying to come up with the best way to reconcile these things, to fit in, you know, some kind of, whether it's, you can run um, JavaScript in PHP. There's a library called PHP V8. And there's at least some support for SSR in that context. Obviously, the you know most people that do this, they do it in Node. And so that's what most of the documentation and most of the libraries are going to expect. So yeah, maybe that's the way that we'll go. A, a colleague of mine on the design systems team is investigating different ways to do this now. And related to that, I'm investigating ways to introduce a front-end build tool into MediaWiki. So we were talking about Vite. I think that's probably what we would look at using because it could both handle front-end build and server-side rendering. But we're just trying to figure out how to fit something like this into the existing architecture, basically, of an application that's been around for a long time and hasn't used something like this before. We don't want to make everybody else's life harder just to make our life a little bit easier on the front end. So that's one problem we're still trying to solve. We're also looking at uh, TypeScript. We are not big utilizers of TypeScript yet, but we've been experimenting with it. And I think there's a lot of different ways to use TypeScript. So having a little bit more type safety in code is great. One thing that I uh, have been looking at lately is, okay, so writing TypeScript, switching 100% to TypeScript when you haven't done it before, it can be a bit of a slog. Um, I'm sure people have different opinions about this, but you have to really know, like sometimes when I'm writing code, I'm kind of exploring different approaches, right? Like maybe I'm writing a method and I'm trying to figure out what the shape of the data is that it's going to return based on what else I'm doing. And uh, sometimes it's really nice to work in this sort of iterative way where you tweak something, you see what happens, you tweak it again. I've had a hard time getting TypeScript into that kind of a flow where all of a sudden all these errors light up and you can't really concentrate on what you were doing before because no, the thing that you have to update your, your, your type for this new thing, even though you're not sure whether or not you need it. So you kind of go back and forth all the time. One thing that I found that's really nice is uh, uh, you can introduce TypeScript in the JS doc comment tags, which I think is a great way to get a lot of the benefits without losing all of your momentum because you have to change everything every time. Um, and so I've found it's possible to like, oh, you can still write a, a types file. It can be a d.ts file or something like that, where you do write a type definition file in TypeScript. And then you just, you just import it into your JavaScript in the doc block comments. And, uh, and then if you're using an editor like VS Code, it, it works great. And with Vue 3 being written in TypeScript, you can get a lot of mileage that way, where you know, even in JavaScript, your editor can infer the types of the uh, variables you're making and the, you know, the values that are returned from various methods. So that plus a little bit of your own custom types in a separate file can go a long way without having to actually compile anything, introduce that tool into a build step, etc. So I think, I think that's another good direction for us in the future. Other pain points about Vue, maybe the last thing is just, again, type, the TypeScript might solve this a little bit, but sometimes a lot of data that you need is in a string format instead of like something that's a little bit more available programmatically. So like Vuex, for example, you're using strings to map the names of things. Maybe you change the name of a method somewhere. You don't, it's not obvious that it's been changed in the place where you're mapping it. So I, I know some people 
say that's a big downside of you. Personally, it's something I can live with, but in a larger and more complex application, I'd say that is a pain point too, maybe in relation to some of the other frameworks. So a couple of things real quick. One, uh, you were talking about converting to TypeScript on JavaScript Jabber, one of the other podcasts, we talked with people from Sentry about doing exactly that. Um, and it was talked for about an hour about it. So it's, it certainly is not a uh, small task. If I remember correctly, it took them a number, a couple of years or a long period of time. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then in terms of PHP, out of curiosity, what are you using? Are you using like a framework like a Laravel or a Symfony or something like that on the back end? Or is it just straight PHP that's accumulated over the years since, since the project started out? Yeah, MediaWiki long predates any of these other frameworks. And so we kind of, MediaWiki is kind of its own framework, I guess. You know, there, it, it has a lot of its own built-in kind of utility classes and things like that. But it also has a different paradigm. There's just a lot of things that are fundamentally different. One thing that I was kind of surprised by, so Rails was the first backend framework I learned, and Ruby still has a special place in my heart. Maybe that's a topic for another another conversation at some other point. But you know, most Laravel, Rails, uh, a lot of these web application frameworks, you have a clear distinction between I'm running this app in development mode versus I'm running it in production mode. MediaWiki just doesn't have that. There might be certain components of it that have a debug mode or something, but there's no top-level conception in the app, as far as I understand, uh, of anything like that. There's a lot of quirks, I guess, of, of MediaWiki that had to do with it evolved before a lot of these things were standardized, before REST APIs were a standard thing, before the idea of kind of a standard CRUD app was a thing. I don't think there's a notion of like controllers, you know, MVC architecture. We're like, MediaWiki evolved before a lot of these things existed. And so it has its own solutions, which are a little bit weird and maybe don't totally map on to standardized way of doing things, either on the back end or on the front end. Yeah, I don't think it even has a concept of REST, like RESTful API. I believe yeah. the, the, the Wikimedia or the MediaWiki API is very, very unique. Writing my own API endpoints is much different than what I would do for other applications. So that just means it no works versions. a lot harder? It just works a lot harder because it never yeah, rests? It never rests. No, no rest for the Wicked, right? Or for the Wiki, yes. Yeah, no there rest you go. for the Wiki. <laughs> so yeah, that's just another example of like, we had to really... Re- I had to relearn a lot of things coming here, and I think a lot of developers have that experience. So, On the note of TypeScript real quick, you were talking about JS Doc, and former co-host of the show, Austin Gill, wrote an article some time ago called TypeScript the Easy Way, where he talks about how to incrementally increase your, your ability to type your JavaScript using JS Doc. Um, highly recommended for anyone interested in this topic. Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes. Second, Eric, you mentioned the uh, the magic string issue with, with Vuex. And especially when you're relating it back to TypeScript, back in March, as part of this JS Marathon, I did a talk on implementing TypeScript in Vue 3. And we specifically go over that, where uh, you, you learn about how to strongly type your Vuex so that even though it's a string, TypeScript knows exactly what kind of strings those are and what kind of data would, be, would come out of those functions. Oh, very uh, cool. So. Anyone interested, uh, there will be links in the show notes for that as well. Eric, thank you so much for going over all this with us. This has been an excellent episode. I've been very excited to talk to you about all this. Well, thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited to share what we've been working on, and I hope this is interesting to some people. Yeah. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I've put together the curriculum. 
And I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people. And now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a masterclass. It's going to be a four-week masterclass where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. At this point, we'll move on to picks. Picks are the part of the show where we share things we like with the tech community. They don't have to be programming related. I will go first today. I have one pick. And we've been talking about Veet, especially in the, the end portion of this episode. Veet is amazing. And recently, I have been playing more with Elm. Elm is a functional programming language, which you may have heard me talk about before. I created a template for Veet to get started writing Elm and submitted it to the awesome Veet GitHub repository. So if you're interested in playing with Vite and Elm at the same time, check that out. For a view angle on it, View 3.2 now supports web components, which Elm also supports. So you can do a, you can add components using Vue in your Elm code, uh, but have Elm as the core of your application if you need that extra JavaScript access. Definitely recommend checking that out if you're interested in a combination of those tools. Steve, what are your picks for us today? Yes, once again, we have reached the high point of the podcast, which is otherwise known as My Dad Jokes. So we'll start out today with a pretty straightforward one is, what do you call somebody who tells dad jokes that is not a dad? A faux pas. Thank you. Thank you very much. I was going to call him a lad joke. No, no, it's the person, not the joke itself. And then the other day, I was out in a rural part of town and I was attacked by a flock of sheep and actually got sent to the hospital. But fortunately, I was only grazed. And then finally, before I got married, I dated this gal that was, <clears throat> that was cross-eyed, but the relationship didn't last long because we just couldn't see eye to eye. And but also I felt like she was seeing somebody on the side. So, you know, sort of complicated things. But anyway, those are my dad jokes for the week. Hey, hey, Steve. Hey. How do trees use the internet? Uh something. They leaf through it. No. Um, they log in. Log in. Ah, dang, I was almost there. Thank you. Thank you for adding to the collection. You're welcome. Eric, do you have a pick for us today? Oh, by the way, sorry, one credit real quick. Sorry, the cross-eyed joke, I have to give credit where credit's due. That's uh, Dwayne Johnson from Jungle Cruise movie. I, my daughter and I went and saw it. I was laughing out loud in the theater, and she was telling me to be quiet because I was embarrassing her, but very great, very good. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, the uh, yes. philo philosopher and essayist of our time. Yes, he <laughs> is He is quite quite good at the dad jokes. So there's, a, there's a clip on YouTube that shows some of them from the beginning of the movie. So good. Eric, we'll now move on to you. Do you have a pick for us today? Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm going to attempt to give you a bad dad joke for us too. Okay, right so a, uh, a, a test engineer walks into a bar and he orders negative one beers. A test engineer walks into a bar and he orders ASDF, JK, LOL. <laughs> a test engineer walks into a bar and he orders 9,999 beers. Uh, a, a test engineer walks into a bar and he orders apple juice. Um, you know, this is a... <laughs> There's not really a punchline, but you get the idea. <laughs> well, what's funny is that on JavaScript Jabber, uh, we were interviewing Niall Crosby from AJ Grid, and he told almost that exact same dad joke. So it was, it was a little different, but uh, I, appreciate, I appreciate the input. That's so good. You can, you can cut this part out of your episode. <laughs> no, 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 no. But, this is staying in. But does the test engineer serve a beer and see what happens? Well, see, what I heard was that he also went up, a table, went up to a table and asked if he could join it. But there's a couple steps in there before about relational databases and stuff. I forget what, but okay. anyway, it's yes, that one can be extended. I'd like one SQL injection attack, please. <laughs> okay, so this is so good. I swear I'm not a paid brand ambassador, though actually maybe that's something I should look into. That sounds great. But one piece of technology that I have been 
really into the last couple of months is this thing called a Remarkable. Maybe someone has talked about this in the past, but it's a tablet device that it's an e it's an e ink screen with a pen, but it's like the size of an iPad, and you can read like a Kindle. And you can write like in a notebook, but they've optimized the entire interface around this very seamless, uh, super low latency writing experience. So basically everything is a writable surface. You can load a book and annotate it. You can draw and sketch and things like that. It's just really cool. It's a very purpose-built piece of, of technology. And it's like an infinite notebook, basically. So you know, you only need one notebook with you. I used to have all these little moleskin notebooks and uh I'd always be, I'd never have the one on me that I, it was appropriate, like the work notebook or the personal notebook or whatever. So now it's all, it's all in one place. Uh, but there's something really nice about, you know, they market it as this uh, distraction-free environment for thinking and note-taking. I think there's kind of something to that. There's so many distractions around us all the time. There's something really cool about really just having a device that's designed to do one thing and do it well. So I'm a huge fan of the Remarkable. Technically, the Remarkable 2 is the one I've been using. So I definitely encourage your listeners to check it out. Awesome. We will make sure there's a link in the show notes. I am also a fan of the Remarkable. We got one a couple months ago just to general note-taking, get some ideas out of our head. Uh, My wife and I trade it back and forth. It is an excellent device. And it really feels... Despite being electronic, it feels like you're writing on paper with a pen. And if you get the special version of the pen, you can even flip it over and use it as an eraser, just like you think you should. Yeah, it's really cool. For what it's worth, I'm going to throw, I'll throw another link into the show notes here. But hearing you say remarkable over and over reminds me of this great scene from The Little Rascals, where the little kids are going around saying remarkable. Good stuff. Nice. Anyway, thought I'd share that. Well, thank you. Eric, how can people find you if they want to continue this conversation or if they want to contribute to any of the open source work at the Wikimedia Foundation? That is a great question. So I have a pretty low profile on social media. I do have a Twitter, which is just at EC Gardner. And that also links to a a website and, and you can contact me that way if something here was interesting to you. And then as far as you know, the development work that we're doing, because Wikipedia is an open source project, uh, everything happens in the open, all of our task boards and things like that are fabricator, they're public, people can watch what we're doing and join in comment. We have some volunteer developers who have been very active already in terms of migrating certain projects or writing user scripts and things like that using Vue. So that's been really cool to see. Shout out to Danny S712, who's been super active and uh, uh, prolific. Danny is amazing. I second that one. Yeah, I'd I'd love to meet this person someday, but... Oh, so S712 isn't his last name? I don't know much about Danny. I just know his handle. Oh, okay, Okay, gotcha. And we've communicated in code review and fabricator tickets. Um, But yeah, I just, I really appreciate the work all the volunteers do. And uh, he's been doing a ton lately. So yeah, the other thing I guess would be the design systems team at the foundation. I can throw in a link to that. So that's kind of the new team that was formed after some of these things like the decision to adopt Vue and to migrate to Vue 3. Uh, we're kind of the ones guiding that. But in addition to the technical stuff, there's also the work of you know building a, just a design system itself, um, a set of design principles and components and things like that that can be used um, around the foundation or in other projects. Uh, so there's both a tech side to what we do as well as a design side. And you can see information about the team and what we're working on on that wiki page. Awesome. Thank you. One last question. Is the foundation hiring for any view developers at the moment? And if not, where should people look for that listing in the future? You know, we we actually are. Oh, even better. This. So <laughs> we are, and I think it could probably be surfaced a little bit better at this point. But if you go to wikimediafoundation.org, 
slash about slash jobs, you'll see a list. And um, I'm in the product department. There's a number of different departments. Product and technology are the two departments that generally need software developers. And I think right now there's a couple of open positions that are lumped under something called senior PHP slash front-end engineer, because there's a couple of teams. So maybe this job description needs to be like uh, split up or rewritten a little bit. But there's definitely both on structured data, which is my uh, the team that I've been on for a long time until I move over to the design systems team full-time. There's also a growth team that's building tools for like new editors, especially in other parts of the world, maybe that have not been super active on Wikipedia so far, trying to bring in more people as readers and editors. But they're both looking for software engineers who will need to do front-end stuff as part of what they're doing and you will be part of that. So there will definitely be openings. Keep an eye on that wikimediafoundation.org slash about slash jobs page um, in the future. Well, thank you. And once again, Eric, thank you so much for joining us to come on and talk about Wikimedia and View and all things awesome that you all are doing. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, hope you all enjoyed this episode as well. You can find more of us at viewsonview.com or at devchat.tv. You can also find us on Twitter at Views on View. You can find myself on Twitter at Lindsay K. Wardell and Steve on Twitter at Wonder95. Hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you again next week. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.